Welcome back to Outside the System. Today I'm speaking with Miles Snyder, the founder of Mother Tongue Cooking Club and one of my favorite recent followers on Twitter. In this episode, we talked about the journey Miles has been on to get to where he is now, which included a year-long stint in Tulum, how he thinks about creator-led businesses, how to get started with building an audience, the non-intimidating way to get serious about cooking, and of course, how he thinks about ingredients like salt, fats, and alternative cuts of meat. Make sure to check out the show notes. There's a lot there. And reach out to us on Twitter to let us know what you think of the episode. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review, tell a friend, and support the show with Bitcoin on Fountain or any other podcasting 2.0 app. Let's get started. Miles, I am excited to have you on today. Your Twitter account is like the 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 page that probably is responsible for me gaining a couple pounds. So <laughs> uh, I'm really glad to have you on. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, just for anyone who doesn't follow you on Twitter, or know who you are. Uh, Miles basically, and I'll let him explain this in his own words, but Miles basically shares uh, and and has kind of gone really deep into the art of cooking. And I think the art of cooking for yourself, as opposed to like restaurant kind of food. Um, And he's made it really accessible. Like he has a pantry guide that's super helpful. Um, I think you have like a cooking club, which has tons of cool recipes and instructions. And then you basically post like a couple times a day, like these really interesting threads of you know, sometimes it's about salt or like about flour or like the farmer's market or cuts of meat. And so I found it to be personally super useful. Uh, It's been one of the most fun follows I've actually seen over the last year. So wanted to bring him on to talk about what he's doing. Miles, maybe I butchered that. So you could maybe explain that a little better. Yeah, no, you got it. Perfect. Um, The only thing I'll say is that I did, I did cook professionally at one point. um, But you're, you're right in that my focus is very much on like home cooks because that that's what I am now. And that's where like so much of my beliefs around why cooking is important. It's, it's for like home cooks. I, I want more people to cook for themselves, for friends, for family, um, you know, make, make their own food and like gain all the benefits from that, whether it's like eating healthier or being more creative or saving money or, you know, uh, having like a better social life. Like there's so many things that, that come from that. So um, yeah, I'm just really focused on like trying to, to spread that message and then also give people, uh, resources that, that make it easier for them. Um, and yeah, I'm really glad that you're like enjoying what I'm putting out on Twitter because I've, you know, I've, I've kind of been trying to like share this message in different ways. And it was like a year ago, I started this Twitter account. I started, I, I had an old Twitter account that was kind of like personal and professional and, all that. And I decided to start one that was like solely focused on cooking. Um, and it's been really cool because I feel like for me, I really like Twitter as an outlet for, um, sharing stuff like this. Like you, the fact that you can do both like text and multimedia and threads and all this stuff, it just makes it like really a good platform to share this kind of stuff. And there's not that many people doing cooking stuff on Twitter. Uh, so I think there's just more opportunity there. Whereas like before when I was doing like TikTok stuff, for example, there's like so many people doing cooking stuff there that it's, it's kind of hard to stand out. Probably Instagram as well, right? Yeah, similar. I actually never really like dabbled with Instagram hard, but but 
absolutely it's the same case and that's even, yeah like whether you're sort of like an og instagram person in food that's always been a big thing there or if you're doing like reels now it's just a it's a very competitive landscape it's actually surprising to me that there's not more people doing cooking stuff on twitter or even like other sub genres that i think um you know you see that there's a lot on these other platforms and i think there's room for people on twitter uh and there's like a lot of people aren't aware of that opportunity i think in some ways yeah, so there's so many different areas I want to kind of offshoot into here. Yeah. Uh, but I think the first one that would be really interesting is, so you mentioned you used to cook professionally. Yeah. What led to the transition? What even motivated you to cook professionally in the first place? Like, were you always making stuff even when you were a kid? Or just like, how did you even get into into this? And then what led you out of that into what you're doing now? Yeah, Okay. Um, so I grew up in a family where food was just a really, really important thing. My mom is actually a trained chef. She worked as a caterer for a long time, um, and always cooked really well for my family. And not, not only was my mom really into cooking, but she very much set the foundation for how I think about approaching cooking, like holistically. Like I grew up in Cleveland in the nineties, but my mom was like going to farmer's markets before they were a popular thing and always cared really deeply about like ingredients and sourcing and all of that. And so I just got a lot of my love for cooking from her and a lot of my knowledge as well. Um, but I always kind of enjoyed it growing up. And then when I went to college and didn't have my mom cooking for me all the time, that's when I really realized I was like, all right, I need to start learning this on my own and taking this seriously. And in doing so, I just completely fell in love with it, like in a, in a much deeper way than I had even had growing up. Um, and so my senior year of college, I was kind of trying to figure out what to do after school. And I was like, I really want to pursue this passion. I feel like it's a good time to, to try and do something that, you know, I, I might not be able to do at another point in my life. Um, so I had studied abroad in Argentina in college. And like, I went to a, uh, I went to a school called Fordham in New York city, like a regular school, uh, not a cooking school, you know, I studied economics and I'd studied abroad in Argentina. So I spoke fluent Spanish. Um, and I've always really loved Mexican food. So, I started looking around and I ended up finding this uh, culinary program in Mexico City that was like a short program. You know, it wasn't super expensive and it was just kind of an opportunity to like go and learn a very specific um, style of cuisine. It was focused on like regional Mexican cuisine. And so right after I graduated college, I moved to Mexico City and did that for six months. And the original plan was like, do that and then come back and just get a like a, a job of some sort. But I was having such a good time when I was down there that I was like, I really want to keep doing this and figure out a way to stay here in Mexico and figure out a way to just go deeper on this cooking journey. So I started just reaching out to restaurants um, and in Mexico to get a job. And I ended up getting a job at this place called Heartwood that's in Tulum. Um, super cool outdoor open fire, uh, wood fire restaurant in like the jungle of Tulum really incredible place. And so I went there and ended up cooking there for a year. Um, and that was an incredible experience. I mean, I can tell you like a bunch of stories about what that was like, but to answer the second half of your question, I think ultimately I, I always knew going into it that cooking professionally was something that I wanted to do to learn, but not necessarily something that I wanted to do, you know, as my main career for the long term, And for a bunch of reasons, one is that it's just, it's very, very difficult. You know, it's like long hours, physical labor, it's you, you're not able to make a lot of money. Um, but it's also like you could, 
like I, sometimes I think like I, I like cook. I love cooking more than anybody I know. Like I just, I, I love it so much, but you could love cooking and still not uh, be a great chef because in order to like be a chef, you have to choose a specific lifestyle and you have to really like love that lifestyle. And I didn't love that particular lifestyle. And so I wanted to find ways to like incorporate cooking into my life that didn't require me to be a professional restaurant chef. Yeah, well, the Mexico City thing and the Tulum uh, experience really explains your uh, tortilla recipes that you post. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of my, it, it's a definitely a theme you'll notice in my food. Like I'm very, very inspired by Mexican food and ingredients. That's my favorite cuisine. And obviously the time I, I spent down there, just like kind of if you look at my pantry, it those are the flavors that like are highlighted and repeated, you know? That's the, that's the inspiration for a lot of what you do. I think. Yeah, totally. That's kind of like the, it's like the palette that I paint with. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's a cool analogy. Well, uh, so you mentioned the chef lifestyle. So I, um, I like, I've never been interested in cooking professionally. I do enjoy cooking, but, um, I was always intrigued by just like the chef personalities a little bit. You know, I got, I like, I think I like the Anthony Bourdain, uh, parts unknown at first. That's what kind of introduced me to it. And then I, I read his book. Then I read a few other, um, chef books kind of like in a similar vein. And, uh, it's, it seems like a hard lifestyle. So, yeah. And it's funny because even though the restaurant was in Mexico, the, the guy who started the restaurant, the sort of like, he, uh, or I guess owner, executive chef and the head chef, uh, were both from New York and had kind of come up in those like Anthony Bourdain style kitchens. Um, the head chef actually worked for David Chang, if you know who that is from Momofuku, um, yep. who's like kind of a notoriously hard guy to work for. Um, and so the the environment w- at the restaurant where I worked was was similar in a lot of ways to those those places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, I don't blame you for not wanting to, to work there, but what was, what was that year like in Tulum? I mean, you moved there essentially, right? I mean, you were in Mexico city, then you moved to Tulum working there. Uh, I'd love to hear like your, you know, what, what's like yeah. one story that, uh, I'm trying to think of just, one you don't even story. have to pick one. You don't have to yeah. pick one. Let's, let's I stay mean, on this. Just it's the, be fun. the, uh, naivete that I had going into that situation was incredible to look back on. Like I landed in Tulum. I didn't have a place to live. I like, I I had no idea what it was like to work at like a high level restaurant like this. I was like, dude, I'm moving to Tulum. I'm going to live on the beach. I'm going to work at this cool restaurant. Like it's going to be so like, it's going to be such a fun year. And I show up and first of all, it's like so hard to find a place to live at this time because all these places are taking, taken. So I end up like just getting the cheapest, most disgusting, like one bedroom apartment you could ever imagine. It's like, there's like mold on the walls and like the shower and the toilet are just one in the same. Like you stand above the toilet to shower and it's only cold water and like all this stuff. And, but even worse was that like, I showed up at the restaurant thinking like, I'm just going to start cooking. And the chef is like, no, you're going to cut, like you're going to um, gut scale and fillet fish for like the next couple months. Like that's where you're going to start. And so, um, so no joke. I was working like 14 hours a day, just like moving fish around, gutting them, scaling them, filleting them. And then it's like between that and the sweat from being outside all day, like you're just, it just seeps into your skin. And then you like go home and take a cold shower and you can't even get the smell off of you. Um, 
And I was like, two weeks in, I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? This is crazy. I thought I was going to be like cooking. Um, and then I happened to just get lucky because one of the line cooks quit like three weeks or a month into me being there. And I got moved onto the line. And then from there on out, I was like a cook there. Um, but like, I, I'm like, thank God that happened because if he hadn't quit, like I, I think I literally would have done the fish work for like three months. Wow. Yeah. Then you, they had to bring in someone else for the fish at that point. Yeah. Yeah. But that might be I why you're very good at, at uh, filleting fish during that time though. And recently I was in Mexico and I did it again for the first time in a while. And I was like, oh, I still got it. That's, I was going to say, isn't that where uh, you made the fresh ceviche? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We went on a fishing boat and, and the guy was cutting them up. I'm like, can I, can I get in there and do one? And he was like, yeah. Um, and it's funny. It's like when you do something that many times over the muscle memory sticks for a long time. So you, you were able to pick it back up. No problem. Yeah, definitely. What year was that? Like when were you doing, when were you in Tulum? I, uh, that was 2016. Like basically. Oh wow. So it's been a while. It's like yeah, seven. Yeah, yeah. It's like six, yeah, seven I mean, years I've, now. I've like, you know, I've butchered fish in between a, a few times, but it's been a while since I've, since I've done it. It's definitely since I've done it consistently. So, so then what happened after the, after Tulum, like when you came back or, or I guess what made you leave in the first place? Did you go work somewhere else or? So, uh, no, I, I left Tulum and then I, I did, uh, like three months in Oaxaca, um, just like traveling. And there's this thing in the restaurant world called staging, which is basically where you just like, if you, sh- if you go to a restaurant and you get in touch with them and you're like, Hey, I'll come work for you for free. They call it sta- like stagiaire. Um, it's like a French term, but basically it's a, it's a thing that a lot of restaurants do. Well, they'll let you come work there for free just to like learn. So I staged at a restaurant in Oaxaca for a little bit. And then I just went down to the like Oaxacan coast and was just kind of like traveling around. Um, and I had just done that. I kind of wanted to do that to finish off my time in Mexico. Um, the restaurant where I was working closes for the rainy season every year. So when it closed, I went to Oaxaca, um, and in my mind, I'd always kind of had like, all right, I'll, I'll do this for a year and then I'll, and then I'll come back. Um, and so, yeah, that's what, you know, I kind of planned that and I started thinking about what I wanted to do next. Um, and I ultimately got a job with a company called Macienda that you might've seen me talk about on Twitter. Cause I always use their products to make corn tortillas and a bunch of other things, but I ended up going and working for this company that was based in LA called Macienda that like sources products from Mexico and distributes them to, um, at the time it was mostly restaurant clients and now it's a lot of like direct to consumer stuff. Got it. Yeah. So, okay. So I definitely want to get super deep into the actual like things that you talk about on Twitter, because I think they're super useful for anyone listening. But before we get into that, like, so talk a little bit about what you're doing now. I mean, I know, obviously we talked a little bit about how you're using Twitter to share the message but just kind of the overarching goal of what you're doing now, because I, I do want to tie it together to this theme of being outside the system a little okay. bit, because I think what you've done is, is really, really interesting. And like, obviously you said already, there's room for more people in the cooking world to do this kind of thing on Twitter. But I actually do think there's, there's so many other industries and so many other things that people can sort of teach others online in a way that isn't being fully appreciated. Totally. Yeah. And that's kind of what, like, that's what I was saying is I think there's like other uh, verticals where people could try this approach and I think do well. 
Um, and I just think Twitter in particular is somewhere that like, like Twitter, you see all the people who are talking about like business and, and, you know, and money making and productivity and all that, like those seem very saturated on the platform. But like, as far as people who are doing a lot of stuff around cooking, like there's like 10 that I can name, you know, and I've, I'm sure there's other verticals where, where that exists. But, um, yeah, as far as what I'm doing now, I mean, I'm definitely still trying to figure it out in a lot of ways. Um, but I am kind of trying to, you know, build a platform and, and build an audience talking about cooking and teaching people how to cook at home. Um, and hopefully like, you know, both teaching them sort of like the technical side of, of cooking and getting better at that, but also hopefully sharing a little bit of like my philosophy around, um, food and ingredient sourcing and sustainability and health and all these other things that ultimately do relate to cooking. Um, and so the primary way I'm doing that, I guess right now is really like through Twitter and then also through my newsletter, um, which is called Mother Tongue Cooking Club. Um, it's a Substack newsletter that I have. Um, I, I was writing it on Ghost previously and switched over, which we could potentially talk about uh, at some point because I that, that was kind of, I learned a lot from that process. Um, we definitely should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll plant a flag there and, and come back to it. But basically, yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of, using these two platforms as a way to share content that, um, yeah, that helps people, uh, get better at cooking, you know, become better home cooks and, and learn more about all this stuff. And I think moving forward, what I'm trying to do is figure out ways where I can, um, both like expand the sort of like types and amount of content that I do, um, whether that's doing like more, more video stuff or, or you know, podcasts or, or whatever. Um, you know, like courses, like all, all different kinds of, uh, things I'm thinking about. And then also just like, like, uh, you know, increase the scale at which I'm doing it. You know, I want to like, hopefully teach as many people as possible, uh, how to cook or at least help as many people as possible get better at cooking. Cause I, I really do believe that it's something that can improve people's lives greatly. Um, and I care about it so deeply and I, and I love sharing it that I just feel, I feel confident that like I can, the, just continue to do it for a very, very long time because it doesn't feel like work. Um, so I think eventually I'll, I'll, you know, I'll figure out, um, some stuff that works more, maybe I'll, like I'll thinking about the sort of the, the money side of things or trying to monetize this. Like it's not a huge priority right now, but I would like to get there eventually. Um, but I feel confident that as long as I just keep doing it, those, those things will in some ways figure themselves out. And I do feel confident that I can and will continue to do it because I enjoy it so much. Yeah. Dude, I feel the exact same way about podcasting. Like, I just love doing it and it's like monetizing it. I feel like like the dream would be this is what I can do and like this pays my bills and like that's awesome. That's what I would love to do. This and made you think, right? I love talking to people like you who are doing cool things and like trying to do things in new ways that's outside the system. Made you think is, you know, me and a couple of buddies talking about books. Like that would be the dream, but it's like one of those things where like, you don't have to pay me to do it. Like I love doing it. So that's the, I mean, that's, if you can find something like that, that also pays your bills, then you're literally like in heaven. So totally. Yeah. And I think like the, the other thing is when you feel that way about it, where you genuinely love it so much, you're just like, at the very least, I'm going to la- outlast anyone who's doing this with any kind of other motivation. Yes. That's so true. That's and honestly, I feel like in your case and in the podcasting world too, you can you can actually feel that when the person creating the content has that kind of mentality towards it. It's it's a very different thing than, you know, I'm sure you've seen like companies put out podcasts and stuff. And like 
there's nothing wrong with that. They're great. They can be great lead gen, but they're not the same as like somebody doing it as like a passion project that in some of these passion projects, you know, can become huge. I mean, I would, I would actually say like Tim Ferriss's show probably started that way. And like Joe Rogan's show probably started that way. And like they all, you know, uh, uh, Danny Miranda's show probably started that way. And like they, they obviously have, they're ambitious about it, but they are, they're doing it because they love it too at the same time. So it's, yeah. 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 And I think another way you see that is like when you see brands try and do this stuff and okay. So this is something that I, I learned in a very interesting way, but short story is like, uh, two and a half years ago, I started a spice company, uh, selling organic spice blends. And the reason was, this was before I was doing any sort of like content creator stuff. Um, and I really had this desire to like share, uh, my love for home cooking and help people get better at home cooking. And so the lens that I thought about it was like, Oh, I should create a product that helps people kind of, you know, uh, cook at home more easily. And, I can create a bunch of content through that brand to uh, support the product. And what was interesting was that it was like, it was a lot of the same stuff I'm doing now, but because it was coming from a brand versus a person, it did not hit in the same way. And it was, I mean, we ultimately shut the company down and it, it didn't, it didn't work, but it like, it really, it was a, it was a good learning lesson in hindsight where it's like, people do kind of want to hear it from people rather than from brands and now when I see it, whether it's like a cookware brand or, you know, whatever, like D2C brand in the in the cooking space is kind of trying to do content, there's degrees to which it like works or doesn't work, but it, it doesn't feel the same as when it's coming from someone. What about when it's like an influencer thing, like where it's somebody who has a reputation or, or audience already, and then it's a brand kind of partnering with them? I think that's a much better route. And I remember I was having a conversation with my sister, who's also an, a, an entrepreneur and a really successful one at that. And she was kind of asking me when I was shutting this company down, like, would you do it again? And what would you do differently? And I said, you know, I would like, I'm, I'm a little burnt out by like uh, CPG and, and direct to consumer at this point. But I was like, if I was partnering with someone who had a, a built-in audience, then I would consider it because I think that that's a, a much more interesting path, you know, starting tr trying to get distribution from scratch is really, really hard. And so I think a lot of people right now are, are really excited about this idea of like creators starting brands. And like, that makes perfect sense to me because the hardest part is getting that distribution and that trust and, uh, people with existing audiences have that already. And so like, I think that sequence is the right way to go. And I made the mistake of going the opposite direction and, and, you know, ultimately had a, a, a business failure as a result of it. What, um, so what in, like made you start that business in the first place? Like I actually didn't know that you started the spice company before. So I'd be really curious to know the story. I mean, you know, whatever you're comfortable sharing, but just like what, let, what were the struggles of it? What motivated yeah, I mean, it? I'm, I'm going to be super useful about that. Like I, uh, basically it was the same motivation for the stuff that I'm doing now, which was that I was like, I want to, you know, help people cook at home, help them learn more about it. But I just kind of like, at the time, I guess I didn't really, it, it didn't really cross my mind to be like, oh, I should just sort of do like solo creator stuff and create this content. I had a lot of friends who were in the CPG industry and were doing various like e-commerce direct to consumer stuff. And so I think I kind of saw that and I was like, oh, that's a, that's a route to go. And so in my mind, I, I was like, all right, let's create a product and then create content to sell that product and you have a built-in business model because you're selling a product already. And 
it was just like at the time I think I was I was very naive and, and didn't understand a lot of these things very well and it seemed like the the right route to go um but yeah looking back now it just it, it clearly wasn't I mean it makes sense on paper right it's like oh if we can go build this audience but what you're talking about uh, what you talked about a couple minutes ago the creator led brands makes even more sense because you already have the audience Totally. And also, it's just easier to build an audience as an individual than it is as a brand. There's because there's, people want to connect with people. That's people really people. what it exactly. comes down to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, and I feel that same way. It's like even if I'm as just a regular listener, like I'm way less likely to click on a brand podcast or a brand article or whatever totally. it is, you know, than I am. I mean, the, really, the reason you end up clicking on brand articles is just SEO. It's yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> you know, they like paid. How many brands do you follow on Twitter? Not that very many. few, very yeah. few. I think the only ones I follow, to be honest, are ones that I own equity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. So that's basically it. Yeah, that's really funny. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's. I'd much rather follow a person, even if a person is only talking about their company, I'd be much more likely to follow a person. For sure, yeah. yeah. And I think that's why you see, like, if you, if you look on... Twitter, which is a platform that I know best, but I think a lot of other platforms and you see like the, the figurehead of a given company often has a much bigger following than the company itself, you know? Yeah. It makes total Um, sense too. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I think that's actually like a thing that a lot of founders and entrepreneurs are realizing. And it's why you see like so many CEOs becoming like thread boys is because they realize that that's, that's kind of how it is and, and develop like even if, even if you're not trying to be sort of a solo creator, um, like you may be an entrepreneur who has a business, but building a following as an entrepreneur can support your business in a lot of ways. Yeah, it, absolutely. So actually, let's talk about the ghost versus Substack thing for a second. Yeah. Like what, um, what motivated that change? I've actually never tried ghost personally. I've seen it as a yeah. reader, but I've never um, tried it personally. So my original reason to go with Ghost was because it was like more customizable, uh, kind of more open source. And when I initially came up with this concept, I did structure it like it's called the Mother Tongue Cooking Club. Um, And I really kind of structured it as like this club. And I learned a bunch of stuff from that. One is that sort of like managing online communities is something that I I don't really enjoy. Um, Like, you know, group chats or discords or, or anything like that. It's, it to me feels like a, a burden. Um, and you know, I know people who, who have online communities and they like really enjoy that. So I think it's just f- for different people. Um, but I realized like, I, I, I didn't like that side of it. And so I definitely pivoted the offering from being sort of this like cooking club to being more of just like a, a, a standard newsletter. Um, and the other thing with Ghost is that it's, even though it's like way more customizable, there were things where it was like, hey, we just released Ghost 5.0 and it broke your theme and you have to install mm. this code in order to fix it. And I was like finding myself hiring this, you know, like hiring devs to update my website. Um, and someone, I forget who it was, but someone put it very simply, which is like Substack makes it so that all you have to do is write. You don't have to worry about anything else ever. And that is, I think it's beauty, especially for someone like me, you know, it's like, I'm, I'd rather spend my time writing and cooking and actually doing the thing. Like I do not want to worry about the technical side of things, the implementation, any kind of code changes. And like ghost 
it, you know, if, if you, if you're really into tinkering with your own website, then ghost is, is a good platform. But if you don't want to worry about that stuff, which I don't, then Substack is much better. And then the final thing, and I think this has been by far the, the most important one is that like Substack makes it so easy for someone to subscribe, not just from a UX perspective, like, you know, they do a really good job with that, but like people know Substack and they trust it. And like getting someone to enter their email into a Substack versus, uh, you know, a site built with ghosts that looks like it could be any site is a much, much, much lower hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, so my subscriber rates, rates like instantly went up when I switched to Substack. And then they also have their own internal recommendation um, kind of like engine that is now driving a lot of a lot of subscribers. Um, and when I when I was doing it on Ghost, I had just a custom domain, which is like mtcookingclub.com. And when I switched to Substack, I actually just kept the Substack domain because Substack in itself has kind of become this like brand that it's like, oh, subscribe to my Substack. And there's just a familiarity and a trust there that I think has that makes a, a really big difference. Um, and like, I've seen it, like if you just look at where I switched and like the growth numbers, it's like it made it, that alone made a huge difference. Are most of those people, or, or is it a split? Like what's the split between people coming through the recommendation engine versus people who are just converting at a higher rate to subscribers? Um, so the, the number one driver is still Twitter, but the number two is the Substack recommendation engine. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. It's really impressive, yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right because it's become its own thing, right? It's like not weird to say subscribe to my Substack versus totally. it's like kind of like being like follow me on Twitter or follow me on Instagram. It's yeah. like not any different. It's just a platform. Whereas, like, what's funny is like if I had a custom domain that was like you know mtcookingclub.ghost.io, it looks tacky. You know, it's like go. It's like it looks like you didn't do the work to go like you know, finish your project and get a, get a domain set up. Whereas if you have it dot substack.com, it's like, Oh, that's my Substack, Right. You because know? they've built a brand around it. I they think. built a brand around it. Yeah. And it's I think like, it's what like, was the old thing? The blog spot or whatever. It was yeah, like totally. whatever dot blog spot. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, it looked tacky, but yeah, you're right. The Substack has built their own brand around it. Um, would you, so going back to the spice company, yeah. If you like, is it kind of related to the spice company thing? Like, let's say you are, you know, you grow the audience to whatever yeah. size you feel is necessary for this. Um, I, I do think maybe there's other products you're more passionate about now, just based on yeah. what you've posted about. But I actually do think you're almost setting yourself up really nicely to go build uh, a brand, uh, you know, in addition to all the things you're doing. Yeah. In terms, because as a consumer, right. I'll just tell you just as a follower of yours, right. Yeah. It's, it's, it would be, I already look to you for recommendations, right? If you were to come out with your brand of like salt or because you talk about salt a lot or yeah. your brand of like beef tallow or something like that, it would be kind of, or cookware even, it would be yeah. like easy for me to just be like, oh, I'll just go buy that, right? I don't need to like do any research. I would, yeah. you know, feel like I'm already part of the club. Like, I don't know. There's a lot of benefits to that as a, as a consumer, I'm saying, sure. of somebody who's a consumer of your content. And I don't know how the economics of that work, like what the size of the audience has to be or the, how many purchases have to be done to make that kind of work as a business. You probably already know that because of the spice company, like at least what goes into it on one, on some level. Yeah. So what's interesting is like what you just spoke to, I think is exactly what we're talking about with, in terms of why it makes sense to like build an audience and then launch products. Right. Because like you said, it's like 
you've built or I've built some trust with you where you say, okay, I, I, you know, I trust what he says or what he recommends. And then if you were to, if I were to create a product, it's kind of a no brainer for you because you feel like, you know, I can just go and buy that. That you know what you're talking about essentially, right? It's like, you've proven that you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not like, Oh, who's this, who's this company that they're selling this? I've never heard of it. I have to like, there's a big trust hurdle to get over. Yeah. With what you've done, it's already your audience already is like, oh, Miles knows what he's talking about when yeah. it comes to salt or when it comes to, you know, a fat to cook in. Like he, well, he it's hilarious that you, that you bring up, you bring up two examples of stuff that I've, I've literally thought about. I'm like, oh, those would be interesting, you know, because I'm like, there's, I, there, I, I haven't seen on the market, like a microplastic free salt that has the right um, grind size. Like I use uh, Redmond sea salt a lot, but their fine salt is too fine and their kosher salt is too coarse for everyday cooking. Um, and so I've like, you know, th- thought, thought about that. And then I think also there's like, and again, people want to take these ideas, feel free to, to take them. But like, I think there's an opportunity for like beef tallow. Like there's not, um, th- there's basically two brands on the market, like Fatworks and Epic who are doing it at any kind of um, scale. And, you know, that's just like, one of the, if you look at how many olive oil brands there are from like everyday <laughs> to premium, there's more than you could ever name. And yet there's two beef towel brands. Right. Um, but to your point, yeah, it's kind of funny because I've actually, you know, we're mutual friends with uh, Nat and like he and I have kind of like laughed about this because he said the same thing where he's like, oh, you should, like, what if you start selling spices again? And I'm like, oh man, I feel, I feel like I felt a little burned by that experience, but it, you know, it could be, um, I think that the way that I see it for kind of like the types of businesses or the, the type of stuff that I'm trying to grow and build, it it's sort of like focus on growing an audience, establishing trust. Then I think the first thing that makes sense is digital products because they, you know, they scale so well and all that. Um, and in some ways, like my the paid tier of my newsletter is my first digital product. That I it is. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so I think this year I'd like to experiment with more digital products. So I have a couple different ideas around like uh, kind of like courses or classes or things like that that I'd like to play around with. And then I think the the third tier is physical products. And I think one, you, you want to make sure that you have a really big audience with high levels of trust in order to do that um, because it requires more risk and, and capital up front. But I, the, the funny thing is I don't actually know what those numbers are. Like even from doing the spice company, like I don't really know what kind of audience you need, like like at what number would it make sense to to launch a physical product? Um, and so I think there's probably people out there who are much more knowledgeable than I am about that kind of stuff and could offer a lot of insights there. Um, some of whom I'm I'm friends with, but I'm right now I'm not really thinking about that because I think I'm still primarily focused on just growing uh, an audience as much as I can and then. Uh, my second focus would be on experimenting with different digital products. Um, and then if I feel like I'm really making progress there, then I would say, okay, maybe I'll consider physical products. But yep. there's a lot of additional baggage that comes with doing physical products. And that I did learn from that experience. Is that like the minimum order quantities? There's probably like labeling, like distribution, Dude, warehousing, all, the all above, that stuff. Working with yeah. co-packers, you know, they send you samples and they're in the wrong jars and they, you know, they send you your first batch and it's, packaged wrong and they misspelled something on the label like you name it whatever can go wrong probably will go wrong <laughs> and even actually when i worked at Macienda, we did uh we did frozen tortillas that we were like sending around to all these like whole foods and it's like 
you have a truckload full of tortillas and the, you know, the guy doesn't close the refrigerated door at one stop. So they all go moldy and you lose a whole truckload. It's like, there's just a lot of stuff that comes with physical products. Um, and de depending on what type you do, like spices are nice because they're lightweight and shelf stable, right? That makes a huge difference in terms of like shipping and distribution and all of that. But even still, there's a lot of like problems that come with it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm sure, um, I mean, anytime you introduce a physical, like the, the real world just has so many more variables yeah. than a digital product. I mean, one other business idea, which someone can feel free to take, um, is the downstream, uh, I guess, products that are created from good ingredients. So for example, like everything has seed oils at yep. the grocery store. And I feel like there's so many products. I mean, to be honest, I don't know what the audience size of those seed oil free products are at this yep. point, but it does feel like a wave that is kind of growing and expanding every single day that more and more people become aware of it. There's tons of people talking about it. It feels like if you had to bet on something compounding, I would, I could see that also compounding over time. And so I know, I forget who it was, but somebody started the tortilla chips, the seed oil free. Who's the, the tan man. The tan. Yeah. <laughs> Nat was talking about that on one of the made you think episodes. And yeah, it's, I think uh, he tried them and, and he said they were, they were good, but it's like that kind of thought sparked for me. Cause it was like, there's so many products out there that are just like, they just happen to use canola oil, but otherwise it's a great product. Like they, everything totally. else is clean, but it's a canola oil or yeah. sunflower oil or something like that. Uh, and, I, yeah. I, and so I totally agree with you. Like if there was, if there was a, a health wave that I wanted to, to bet on going mainstream over the next few years, it would, it would definitely be the seed oil thing. Um, but sort of another takeaway that I had from doing this, um, you know, like Sp Spice One Company and even thinking about CPG generally is it's like you, you could come up with all these products where you're like, there's, versions of these that need to be made with good quality oils and you could create a whole company making those and i think that's fine if you're if you have the skill set to make one of those companies work which i i feel like i don't necessarily have that skill set innately like i think i'm much better at creating content and teaching people and all that but what i also like about what i'm doing is that if you can learn to cook at home, you can make any of those things yourself. Yes. And that's kind of what is more interesting to me now is rather than being like, oh, I'm going to make this one specific product in a healthy way and then package it and sell it. I'm like, no, I want to teach you how to cook so that you can pick and choose whatever product you want to replicate. You can make it yourself at home and you can make it the healthy way. That is an awesome segue. That's such a good segue. I like it almost <laughs> is like we rehearsed that, but we didn't. Because um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is cooking at home, right? So yeah. you talk a lot about like the ingredients that you're putting into your cooking and you talk about it for a lot of different categories, actually. I think yeah. you've talked about it for like flour, for oils, for meat, which I definitely want to talk about because uh, particularly when we get to the expense part of it, you've talked about yeah. alternative cuts of meat, uh, salt, vinegar, spices, and then you also talk about equipment. So like if somebody is listening is just like, hey, I've cooked at home, but I've done like, you know, very basic stuff. I got my... Yeah you know, normal pots and pans and I just buy, you know, whatever at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or something um, or the regular grocery store. And, you know, I'm interested in learning more. Sometimes it feels like there's a lot, there's almost too much. So it's overwhelming. Yeah. Where would you recommend somebody like that starts? Like what's the, the, the first thing that they should be doing that would make a noticeable improvement? To yeah. This is, so this is a really good question because I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I've been brainstorming 
some different like digital products I could create around teaching people the basics of cooking. Um, and it can be hard sometimes, you know, it's like I, I've been cooking since I was like super, super young and I was raised in a family of cooks and like it sometimes is hard for me to just go back to that beginner's mindset. And sometimes I'll be cooking with friends and they'll ask a question where I'm like, Oh, I didn't even realize that like that, which like, I, I didn't realize you didn't know that. Like I, I took that for granted that someone would even ha like have a question about that kind of thing. And so I've been spending a lot of time trying to like talk to people about their cooking habits, talk to people who are like new to cooking and really trying to figure out the, the ways to, um, to like help people start on that journey. And I'm still figuring that out, but I basically have like two approaches that I think are, are kind of interesting. One is to focus on learning, like forget recipes and just focus on learning like techniques because by learning techniques, you can kind of learn the principles that are going to transcend any given recipe. So it's like you, you know, if, you, if you, I could come up with a list of sort of like foundational cooking techniques that you should know, like, you know, how to, um, how to do a braise, how to make a stock, how to, you know, do a reverse sear, um, you know, like all, all these different things. And I could give you recipes for each of those so that you could like try them. But the real important thing is to think less about the specific recipe and more about the, the te technique. And so I think that's one approach. Um, and I would say that's the approach that I would recommend for someone who's like, I really want to like go deep into cooking and, and really get better at this and make this a part of my life. Um, but then there's another approach that I've been thinking about that I think is, is also a good one. And is probably even better for people who are like, you know, I don't necessarily want to, you know, I don't like love cooking to death. I don't want to make it like this, you know, big hobby of mine, but I, I do want to get better at cooking. And for those people, I say like, pick three or four dishes that you really love that you can eat a lot of. And like in that, I would say have like something that's like kind of fancy that you could make for like a dinner party or a date, or you want to impress someone have at least a couple that are sort of like weekday type of meals, you know, the type of thing that you could eat repeatedly every week and, and something that's not going to take like a long time. Um, and then, you know, throw a, a fourth one in there, maybe that, that could be something in between. Um, but basically like pick those three meals, find really good recipes that you can follow for each of them and then cook those a bunch of times because at cook, cook them until you can cook them without the recipe basically, hmm. because then you'll have in your repertoire, these like three meals that you can go to. Um, and I think that's like a really good way to approach it. And the way that I think about it is it's like, learning to cook can be very intimidating because there is so much. It's like the equipment and the, 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 the pantry items and the different techniques and like, you know, all these different nuances that a way to make it much more approachable is to be like, forget like learning how to cook, just learn to master, start with one dish, learn to master one dish, you know, like, and then, and then do another one until you have like three in your repertoire. Um, and I think that's a, that's a cool approach as well. So that breaks it down into like a more bite-sized manageable uh, step that you totally. can just get good at this one thing. What about like equipment? So you've talked a lot about like yeah. knives, pans, like cast iron pans, for example, um, cutting boards. I really mm -hmm. like the whole wooden cutting board uh, thread that had been going on for a couple of days because I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of that as well. Um, I think aesthetically oh, too, 
aesthetically too they just look so much better so they look so much better and they just like feel better there's like an energy to them that's just much better there's some amazing stuff which i'll put in the show notes that i like uh, and it's not just about wooden cutting boards this is true Uh for like a lot of call it like more natural products yeah um but like wooden cutting boards for example uh naturally are a less hospitable environment for bacteria Correct. Uh, similar to, there was this great study that was done. You'll never see this done professionally because of liability reasons, I'm sure. But for example, touching something with your bare hands versus touching it with plastic gloves, uh-huh. you're much more likely to transfer bacteria with plastic gloves than you are with your bare hands because your bare hands have your bare hands have oils that are antibacterial uh, naturally, which yeah. which makes total sense that your your body's oils would kill bacteria because it's protecting itself, right? Like totally. Makes and, like, total there's sense. things like, you know, I feel like, like people talk about like, um, grounding and stuff like that. And some people are like, oh, it's pseudoscience. Some people are like, it's, it's legit. But I'm like, I don't really care either way because I know that walking outside with my bare feet on grass feels really good. And so I'm yeah. going to do it, you know? Yeah. Like it's, and that's enough for me to feel confident that I can say that's better than wearing shoes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And if it feels better for you, then like, who cares about totally. anything else? I'm, I mean, these two things that I just said. These are like scientifically backed and everything. So yeah, but the yeah. thing is, the thing is the plastic glove thing, you'll never see that done in real life because then it's like, oh, they were just touching like the lettuce with their hands and then somebody got sick and then it's like, whose fault yeah. is that? But yeah. nobody's going to sue the plastic glove company for that. It's like, oh, we make the glove to protect you from this type of stuff. Totally. They must have used it incorrectly. So anyway, but it's just like interesting things where it's like people have a intuition about how something like, oh, this should be better. You know, oh, plastic should be better because the wood, you know, you see the little micro cuts that go into that. And it's like people think bacteria can be harbored in there, which is possible. But plastic is way, way worse. Way, way worse. And plastic has those little micro cuts, too. And guess where that plastic's going in your food? Yep. Um, but um, but yeah, so it's funny. I actually did a, a little tweet thread this morning where I was talking about cookware. And it was basically like the minimum viable set of cookware. And I think that like... Uh, I basically had in there like a good eight inch chef's knife, wood cutting board, um, uh, cast iron or carbon steel skillet, saucier, and uh, like a, a sheet pan for roasting. And it's like, you could, you like, you could cook almost anything with just that setup. And like, if you went on Amazon and just bought budget friendly options, you could get that whole thing for probably like $200. But I actually went to, so my favorite cookware company is called Made In. They're actually here in Austin but they're like really, really high quality cookware. Um, and just as an experiment, I went and like, or, like put all of that stuff in a cart from them. And this is like top tier stuff that will all last you a lifetime for those things. And the total was $516. And it's like, right. so you could, you could get like a, a top of the line, basic minimum cook, cookware setup for, for that much. And it's a, this is literally stuff that will last you forever. Um, but in terms of, so like, I, the, the, the cookware thing is funny because um, I can like nerd out about cookware like as much as anyone. Like I recently got this hand forged carbon steel skillet from this uh, guy called uh, Athena Skillets out of Virginia. And like this thing is insane. It's like so gorgeous. It's literally made by hand um, and it's insanely expensive and like not necessary for average person. Uh, but I, I love that stuff, you know, like same with knives and all of that. But I will also say, I think that people get too wrapped up in 
needing to have the best equipment, needing to have the best kitchen set up, all of this, like it's, it's really not necessary. You can, you can make things work with a, with a very minimal setup. Even the kitchen that I have now at my place, like if, if I was designing a kitchen from scratch, it would look nothing like the setup I have right now, but you just figure out ways to make it work. Um, and so I think with cookware, it's like my recommendation for people, like, unless you're really on a, a budget, then, then, you know, there's other options and like DM me on Twitter and I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, uh, links to stuff. But like, if you have a little bit of money to spend, focus on just getting a few of the items that, that you, uh, really need and get them in good quality because those things will last you a lifetime. Like a good chef's knife will last forever. A good carbon steel or cast iron skillet, you can literally give that to your grandkids and it improves over time. Um, so that's my recommendation for, for cookware stuff. Your thing about cookware versus just like maybe over nerding out on cookware is a really interesting one. I, um, the thing that comes to mind is like, I was in Mexico city a few months ago and uh-huh. I went to uh, tacos Ruben, okay. which is just like the street cart guy, like pretty famous guy. Right. But he's yeah. had this like street. Have you been there or no? No, I mean, like, and I haven't heard of it. Okay. I'll, I'll send it to you. I, I actually had posted that I was in Mexico city on Instagram. And then this one friend of mine, who's, uh, he owns a cafe and like is really into like food and stuff. And he was like, Oh, like I told him which tacos place I was going to go to. And then he was like, no, 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 you got to go to this guy. So it's Wait, literally a cafe in Mexico city. No, he owns a cafe in New York, but spent oh, a lot okay. of time in Mexico. Um, my, my friend who had told me about this place. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this guy is like literally this cart and has, I'm sure like his equipment is like not, you know, it's not like top tier equipment in any way, yeah. but it's just incredible tacos like totally. and it's just unbelievable yeah yeah so it's, it's really good and like had nothing to do with the equipment i think it was more like ingredients and technique to your point yeah uh, and dude you know what's also funny is that as i've gotten more of like an, an audience and on twitter and, the, and, and especially for tiktok like there's a lot of brands that have sent me like free stuff like different pieces of cookware and stuff and i'm now at the point where I like give a lot of it away to my friends and even stuff that I own myself. I've just started giving away because I realized that like it, it clutters the mind to have too much stuff um, and to have that sort of like infinite optionality when it comes to these things. And I've tweeted about this before, but I think that like constraint leads to creativity um, where like you actually, you, I think what I was saying is that like some of my favorite meals I've cooked at like, Airbnb kitchens or like when I was like camping or whatever. And it's like, you're very constrained, but you figure out really fun ways to make that work. And you end up kind of coming up with cool ideas that you wouldn't have come up with otherwise. And so I now like, I don't want a like different knife for like every use case in my kitchen and like, you know, 25 different types of specialty pots and pans and stuff. So like, I've just literally started giving away a bunch of that stuff. Like I have one buddy who's really into cooking. I've given him like so much stuff because I'm like, just take it off my hands. I want like the minimum, uh, like more basic stuff. And I want, I want the basic stuff in the highest quality that I can find. And that's going to last me forever. But I, I, I don't want stuff beyond that. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. It's like, uh, you find that for a lot of things, even for, and I know Nat does actually a really good job making fun of people with digital tools yep. and, you know, saying like, you don't need the next note taking app. That's not your constraint is not the okay. note taking app. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's stopping you. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move on to ingredients. Cause cool. I think there's so much cool stuff here. So 
Actually, like one thing that you had tweeted about maybe recent, I think it was a couple of days ago or like last week was about flour and yeah. like where you buy your flour and how that makes such a difference. And I know, you know, you're a big uh, tortilla person. So, well, I guess that answers the flour or corn tortilla question for, for you. Well, no, <laughs> for, I mean, so I actually prefer corn tortillas. Me too. Um, yeah. Me too. <laughs> but I think it doesn't really have to be like an either or, you know, like if you in Mexico, it's like it's not like a flour or corn. It's like, what part of the country do you live in? Because that's really like dictates what it is. And so they both have their like use cases, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I like both of them. But Where do you find the use cases? Just quickly going on a tangent on that. Like what are the different use cases that you found where flour is better versus or when corn is better? So for like more classic tacos, I, gen- I generally tend to prefer corn always. Um, but for... Like if you think about stuff that like dishes that come from the north of Mexico where they grow a lot more wheat than they do corn, like those are the ones that, that tend to do well for like flour tortillas. Um, so like a good example is like a burrito. Um, now granted the burritos they make in Mexico look a lot different from sort of like the mission style burritos that we eat a lot of here. But um, that I, I like to, I, I prefer um, flour. And then... Yeah, it's funny. I don't really have like a heuristic for determining it. I think it's it's, it's a feel sometimes. thing. Yeah. yeah, it's a feel thing. I mean, that's honestly not a bad approach. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait, what were we talking about? Flour? Yes. Flour, so yeah. You, yeah. So what you were talking about, I think, was like locally milled uh, flour. So yeah, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'm not like a big New Year's resolutions person, but I am a big like birthday res- like every year on my birthday. You know how everyone does their like uh, annual review around the end of the yeah. year. Like I do that stuff on my birthday. Um, and so one thing that I've been trying to do for the past few years is like every year I pick sort of a new like culinary skill that I want to really like dive deep on. Um, so like one year it was that I really wanted to like learn more about Japanese cooking and ingredients because I, I love that a lot. But this year and like my birthday is in, in August, I decided I was like, I really want to go deep on sourdough and bread making. Um, or I should say like bread, pizza, pasta, etc. And so I have like really gone deep there and like it is awakened in me this like beginner's mindset excitement that that I, I haven't felt in a long time in sort of like the cooking realm. And I just like I'm obsessed with it. It's so interesting. It's so cool. Um, and I, so I've bought like a number of books about it. And then obviously the best way to learn is to go and like apply that knowledge. Um, but so that, you know, if you really just wanted to get into sourdough, there's like a million different resources you could do to, to go that direction. But there's this guy named Chad Robertson who, uh, founded the bake, the, uh, bakery called Tartine out of San Francisco. That's a very famous bakery. And I would say he's, probably the most like well-known American baker alive. He's like a, like he's goat status when it, you know, within that, within that world. And he, his books have really been like a, a super, super good resource for me because his philosophy on uh, bread, like very much aligns with my philosophy on food And so there's a lot of like sourdough and bread making stuff that really just focuses on like the technique. Um, Chad Robertson really focuses on the ingredients a lot. And so, and I think that in some ways it's like, 
that's when you're you're at like the highest levels. I think like the best chefs all realize that ingredients matter more than anything. And the best bakers realize the same thing with flour. And so he, by reading his books, I've learned about like crazy nuances with the stuff that I never even knew existed about like stone milled versus roller milled flour, high extraction flour versus, you know, whole wheat flour, um, that like the different parts of the, um, wheat berry and, you know, how, how those, uh, like how much of those is added to the flour and the difference it makes the difference between flour that's milled fresh versus stuff that's old, the difference between different like varietals of wheat, um, and how those affect flavor. And so that's been just this like wave that I've been riding that I think is like so fascinating. And I think it's one of those things that you can read about it all day, but until you taste the difference, that's when it like really unlocks it for you. And so for me, that like big aha moment came when I tried um, flour tortillas made with Sonora flour for the first time. So Sonora flour is believed to be, I think, the first wheat that was cultivated in the Americas. Um, and so it's this very ancient heirloom varietal largely cultivated in the Sonoran desert. So Northern Mexico, Southern United States, and um, was really like bred in Northern Mexico for the making of flour tortillas. And it's a soft wheat. So there's, there's hard wheats and there's soft wheats and soft wheats are much better for like pastries and cakes and tortillas. Cause they're literally like softer, you know, whereas a hard wheat you'd want to use for like a, a loaf of bread. And so it's this super flavorful heirloom, meaning it was bred for flavor rather than like, uh, you know, output, um, and you know, this like really soft wheat. So it lends itself really well to tortillas. And the first time I made tortillas with that, I was like, holy shit. Like I've been, I I've been eating one thing my entire life and I just like experienced something new, you know? And so I then just became even more curious to like follow that path for other types of stuff, you know? And now I've been exploring, I've been really into pizza dough lately. And so I've been exploring different like types of flour that are, that were specifically bred for pizza dough making or for high heat cooking or, or whatever. Um, and it's just been like super fun and super interesting to me. Um, and I'm trying to, I'm definitely trying to like share more of that. I think sourdough is a little bit more of a, a hurdle for a lot of people, but there's a lot of ways you can still experience these things. Even if you don't use sourdough, like you can make regular flour tortillas with Sonora flour and they'll be amazing. That's like the origin of these ingredients is so interesting. I, years ago, I was like very much into homebrewing beer and got deep into the kinds of grains oh, that you really? could use. Yeah. Yeah. And so barley is actually very similar in the sense that there are different varieties that were created for, or not created, I guess, bread for yeah. uh, different purposes. So like, let's say you're making a wheat beer, the barley that you you'd try to probably get like a Belgian or maybe like a German wheat yeah. as your base, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, barley, and then you'd add wheat as well, but you'd get it as, uh, from the regions that are specializing in that type of, of beer. Totally. So you're making a lager, you know, Vienna lager is actually the lager that like has gotten most popular around the world because, um, I believe Budweiser was originally an, uh, an Austrian recipe. And then, so Vienna lager, Vienna malt, essentially barley malt is, uh, what you would start with as your base grain for that. And if you yeah. try to make a lager with a different type of grain, it's not bad. It's just, it's going to have a different flavor profile than what you think about with the lager. So in the same way that you can experiment with all this stuff for, for bread and pastries and cakes and stuff, it's the same thing for, you know, for beer where you can just get really wacky with uh, totally. the combinations and it's, it's kind of fun. 
Did, did you ever experiment with doing any kind of like natural or like wild yeast beers? Like, or were you always introducing um, commercial yeast? So I had never done it personally, uh, uh, just out of like, I didn't have the right environment to do that yeah. in where I was doing it. But that said, I got really deep into learning about it. So I yeah. visited uh, Cantalone Brewing in Brussels, which oh, wow. I was telling Nat about this, actually. I think it was on a Made You Think episode oh, cool. <laughs> um, recently where... So Cantalone is like, as far as I know, it's like the oldest natural wild yeast brewery in the world. And it's like hundreds and hundreds of years old. And they've, they've obviously rebuilt the brewery over the years, but they've kept the ceiling that they had, or the original ceiling, because they're, they're convinced that the yeast strains that are best, because basically they just have an open vat of unfermented beer and then yeah. wild yeast just colonizes it, ferments yeah. it. And then that's what they basically bottle up um but they're just so convinced that that strain is living in the ceiling that they didn't want to get rid of the ceiling so yeah, I, every time I, they've I, redone I'm it i'm convinced too like i believe it yeah yeah because it's just the environment that they have it's such a cool place to go visit because it's i personally am more of that type of i mean i haven't brewed in a while but like that's yeah. the i'm the type that's the type of brewer that i was where i'm like i like to you know there's people who are I hate to put stereotypes on it, but like the German approach to brewing is very methodical and like repeatable <laughs> and repeatable, which is like, yeah. it's, it's really, really good. And every commercial brewery really needs to follow that just to have consistency across the product. But as a home brewer, I was never like that. Like, I don't care if my next batch doesn't taste the same as this yeah. batch. I'm actually excited about that, that it doesn't totally. taste the same. So I personally am more of that type of brewer. And so I was always really curious about how these breweries who were, kind of not relying on a commercial yeast strain were able to do that because I mean, they're not promising consistency. They're like, Oh, this is like the 2022 version, you know, the May 2022 version. Yeah. It's not going to taste the same as the July 2022 version, even if it has some of the same flavor profiles. So totally. I personally like that a little bit better. And I thought, I thought it's super cool. I never tried it myself though, but someday. Yeah. There's, there's actually a brewery called Jester King here in yeah. uh, Dripping Springs that, that does that as well. And like, it's funny because I was talking to Nat about this the other day, but I've been joking that I'm now like a wild yeast maximalist where <laughs> like, but I have been thinking about this a lot because like the, uh, what was the name of the brewery you said? Uh, Cantalone Brewing. Yeah. So the approach that they're taking in the beer world is the same approach as like doing sourdough bread in the bread world. Right. Um, and you see that you see, you see it in all these different fermented products, right? If you look at like bread, most of it is made with commercial yeast, beer, commercial yeast. Most wine is made with commercial yeast, most yogurt, right? And like when we talk about commercial yeast now, we're talking about like a couple of strains of bacteria that are bred in laboratory environments. And like there's this one company, I think it's called Christian Hansen or something. Um, and they make like, like they, they have like 60% of the market for, for this stuff, right? So we're talking about like very kind of like monotonized, like almost like monocrop yeasts, right? And I think I don't have any like evidence to back this. Mo just I don't mean to cut you off, but monocrop, monocrop plus very domesticated, very same, domesticated. Yeah, yeah, in the same way as your meat, even you know might be like you know wild versus grass fed versus like yeah. commercial grain fed. It's like this is the extreme end of the commercial grain fed. Totally. It's, it literally yeah. is like in a controlled laboratory environment, it would probably die immediately if it, if it was exposed to anything else. Yeah. Um, but I think about like, we have all these products that 
previously were all fermented in, in, in natural ways. And so they had these like crazy diverse, uh, strains of yeast and bacteria in them. And now we've switched to all these same products, but done with commercial yeast. And I can't help but think that that has to have had some effect on the, our, our health and the effects that these things have on our, our bodies. You know, the good news is that you can find them done the, the natural way, right? So it's like you could make sourdough bread at home or find a really good bakery that's doing that. Um, natural wine is like a really big thing now. There's obviously brewers that are doing it that way. And so I've like, I'm trying to consciously as much as I can, like consume products that are the result of like natural fermentation versus um, fermentation with commercial yeast um, because I think they're better for you. And like you said, like the reason to use the the commercial yeast strains is really more for like predictability, yeah. um, repeatability, and having the end product taste exactly the same every time. But like that's that's not actually the most interesting outcome, especially if you're there for like the flavor. Right. Exactly. I think it's um, it's not done for the customer's sake. Really, it's done for yeah. the company's sake because you know if you. At least I've, I've I heard this at Kent alone as there are occasional batches which just aren't good, yeah. and that they won't put out. Maybe they don't put out for. I mean, not not good in the sense that you'll get sick, but not good in the sense that it doesn't meet like the taste requirements that they have. Yeah. And so, and that's a risk with a wild, you know, or, or any sort of like wild fermentation product. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure like a regular person would still drink it and be like, yeah, this tastes good. Totally. But it's but it's not like to their standards, and that's but. They also are like a little small family owned business that has been yeah. owned for like hundreds of years. It's not like a, you know, they're not like a publicly traded company that needs yeah, to hit earnings yeah. reports. So, um, so one thing that, that we sort of started segueing to, which I definitely want to talk about because it ties to eating well on a budget kind of thing yeah. is, is, uh, cuts of meat. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's like I, a couple years ago started buying meat for the first time, actually before that I'd never bought meat from a, a farm before. Mm-hmm. And had like a direct relationship with the farmer. And what I started noticing is like, oh, like if I just buy ribeyes, my cost is going to be way, way, way more than if I'm a little bit more open to other things. So I'd never had uh, liver before that. Mm. Um, You know, I'd never had heart before that. Like, so I ended up trying a lot of different things just out of budget reasons. Yeah. More so than like, because I I was like, okay, I want to buy from this person or I want to buy from a farm. And it's like, do I really want to pay this amount for ribeyes every time? Even though I love, that's my favorite cut. I love ribeyes, but um, it forced me to try other things. What have you, like, I guess talk a little bit about that because I know yeah. you you are a big proponent of cooking with sort of non, non-ribeye cuts of meat. Um, yeah. And I think cultures around the world and Mexican food in particular does a great job of this. So sure. curious to hear. Dude, one of my favorite things in Mexico is like you go to certain taquerias and you just like look at the menu and it's just like every part of the animal. And it's just like, yep. like cheek, brain, eye, tongue, like, you know, you name it. And it's just like, it's all there. Um, That's what that tacos so, Ruben place had. That's literally what oh, it had. Really? It was like, I mean, not like, a uh, not like 20 different parts of the animal, but definitely like, cause it was just a cart. Right. But it's like eight oh, and only yeah. one of those parts is I think a part that an American would be like, Oh yeah, that's like what I'm used to eating. Like yeah. it was just all and sorts like, of other stuff. I remember. Yeah. I remember like hanging out with friends and it's like, it's not just that you're like, Oh, the like tripe taco is like cheaper. They're like, Oh, you got to get the tripe taco. Like that's yes. the best one. You know, there's a lot more openness I think in other places to 
not just eating those meats, but like enthusiastically eating them because they're so good. And like tongue is a good example. I think a lot of Americans are freaked out by the idea of eating like cow tongue. Like that is undeniably one of the best cuts of the animal. It's one of my personal favorites. Lengua. It's so <laughs> flavorful. Yeah, lengua. So it's good. It's so flavorful. It's so like tender. I mean, you could cook it in a way that someone wouldn't even know they're, they're eating tongue, you know? Um, heart is like, heart's a muscle, you know? You're, you're like pretty close to the other stuff. It's, it, it doesn't doesn't have the same hurdle as eating like a lot of organ meat. Um, so is the tongue. The tongue's a muscle too. It's just a little yeah, bit different. But yeah, well, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that, I think there's just so many reasons to to eat this way. One is that it, like you said, it's cheaper, right? Like you can, if you know how to cook a bunch of different cuts, you can basically go to the butcher or the farm or whatever and say like, you can just look, okay, this one's the cheapest right now. So I'll buy that and then I'll, I'll, I'll be able to cook it. Two is... I just think it's like a, there's a sort of like respect for the the animal that comes from like eating in a nose to tail way. You know, if 100%. everyone were just eating ribeyes, we'd have more cows killed and yep. more parts wasted. Um, and then the third part is just that like, I don't think it's healthy to like only eat muscle meat. Um, like if you think about how we ate ancestrally or just to look at like other cultures, it's like, different parts of the animal have different nutritional profiles in terms of like, like collagen content and, and like, uh, mineral density and, and all of that. And like, I remember when the carnivore diet like first started getting big and like, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been involved in like the Bitcoin space for a while. And the, those people were like the earliest I knew to do like hardcore carnivore. Yep. And a lot of them for a while were just like, I eat like one or two ribeyes a day and that's my diet. And I think you've seen a lot of them now transition to having a much more um, varied approach. They'll eat like ribeyes, they'll eat liver, they'll eat braised cuts. Um, because I think you need to like w- humans didn't evolve to just eat muscle meat from from the animals. You know, it, it wouldn't have made any sense. It wouldn't make any sense. Totally. Yeah, it's like you're going to kill this animal, which takes a lot of work to catch and kill an animal or to hunt down an animal, and then you're just going to waste like you know, 50% of its weight. Yeah. I don't think 50%. so. Yeah. yeah. Especially in a so, resource scarce environment. And yeah, it makes, and, and also animals don't really work that way either. No. So yeah. yeah in a resource scarce environment, you're not going to waste any part of that animal. <laughs> right. Exactly. You're going to use every, every single, you know, piece that you possibly can. Yeah. And, and I think like, yeah, I think so more and more people are like interested in that, but it's hard to get started with cooking. Like I know for, for like liver, I have like one recipe that I keep going back to and I, I like uh-huh. need to find more because I think if I had more recipes with it, it would motivate me to eat it more. Yeah. But I have this like Venezuelan like uh, it's like liver and like potatoes or something. It's so good is it, when you make it. It's, it's in like vinegar and butter and like it's really it tastes really freaking good. Yeah. But that's like the one that I got for liver. Yeah, like if I'm eating liver, that's the recipe I'm making. So um yeah, I'm curious, like where, like what resources maybe you found for people to to learn more about cooking with other cuts of meat. Yeah, um, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely some books. I'm trying to think. It's 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 been a while since I've like dove into any of these resources, but um, I can I'll message you some books. Maybe you can add to like the show notes or something. But Darina Allen is an Irish food writer who's written a lot of stuff 
like her knowledge is super comprehensive, but she does a lot of nose to tail stuff and has a lot of good recipes for like every part of the, the um, animal. There's a New York butcher named Pat LaFrida who wrote a really good book um, that kind of like covers, it's like uh, beef, lamb, chicken, and uh, maybe a couple other animals. And he like breaks down into like the, the like primal cuts and secondaries and kind of like how to cook all of them. So his book is a really good resource. But you also just have like with the internet today, you know, you can just find so so many good ones. Um, there's there's a guy named Hank Shaw who has a blog. He's a hunter who does a lot of like wild game stuff. Um, oh, nice. He also just does a lot of like nose to tail cooking. And so it's sort of like I think that you know you can if you find a cut that's like on sale and that you want to buy, there's definitely resources out there for you to to figure out how to cook it. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, you're totally right. We should put a bunch of those things in the show notes. I know we have to wrap up in a few minutes here. So yeah, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm like pretty relaxed on time. So cool. Okay. Well, the two things I definitely still want to hit before yeah. we wrap up are fats and uh-huh. and salt. So you can take yeah. those in whichever order you want, but All you've right, said some really cool things salt. about both of them. Yeah, we'll start with salt because I'm obsessed. Salt is the most important ingredient in cooking, like bar none. Um, it just, it, that's just a fact. And I don't think anyone who, who cooks well would disagree with that. Um, salt is this, it's salt is not a seasoning. That's what people like need to know first and foremost, like this idea of like salt and pepper going together. It's like, no, salt is like a mineral that we put on our food that like improves the flavor, improves the texture. And like, most importantly, it like enhances existing flavors in food. So you put salt on something, it makes it taste more like itself. If you take an, a slice of avocado and eat it without any salt, it's going to taste a little bit bland. If you put salt on it, it's going to taste more like an avocado and like it, the, the flavors are going to be like sharper. Um, so it's not a seasoning salt. Like th- think of salt as its own thing. And then all your other like spices and seasonings in their own category. Um, and so salt is sort of this foundational ingredient that, that everyone needs to use. And I think one thing that I see is, having worked in professional kitchens and then seeing like home cooks is most home cooks are not using enough salt. Like if you went into professional kitchens, the first thing we do, we did when we got to Hartwood in the morning was like fill up a big plastic container with, with kosher salt and carry that with us everywhere. And you know, you're refilling it multiple times throughout the day. It's like, that is the, the number one thing you need for everything. And so I recommend people get like a salt cellar, which is like something that holds salt that has easy access you know, right next to your stove, um, and like use it liberally. Right. And salt, salt things in stages so that you're not like over salting it, but like, don't be scared to, to use a fair amount of salt. Um, so that's kind of like the first thing. And then the second thing, this has been a more like recent research rabbit hole I've gone on is like different types of salt. And, um, I used to use diamond crystal kosher salt for like my main seasoning salt and that's a it's a really good salt and it's very like reliable and kind of like you know exactly how much you're getting and like the grind size is like perfect for cooking um but i started seeing some studies about microplastics in sea salt and uh, i kind of went down the rabbit hole and it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it so basically all salt comes from the ocean but not all salt comes from modern oceans Um, 
obviously modern oceans are very highly polluted and have a ton of plastics in them. So it kind of makes sense that the salt you get from those oceans is going to have contaminants in it. And they've done studies and they've found that. And like any salt that you get from like a large scale producer for the most part is coming from modern oceans, right? What they're, the, the other option you have is salt that comes from ancient oceans, right? So oceans used to cover a lot of like what is now land. So there's these salt deposits in certain places that are really remote and they kind of haven't been touched by modern contaminants. So like Utah has salt flats. Uh, there's parts of like Appalachia that have salt flats. Uh, there's like mountains in Peru that have salt flats and you can source salts from these places that are contaminant and microplastic free. And they're also salt in a more sort of like natural form. So they have a lot more like, um, like trace minerals and stuff like that. And so I switched to using a company called Redmond, which sources all of its stuff from Utah for my like everyday cooking salt. And then there's a company called only salt that sources from Peru for like my coarse flaky salt. And both of those you can get on Amazon and they're not like crazy expensive. And so like how much microplastics are you getting from modern sea salts? I don't know, but I have to think over a long enough time frame that it like compounds because you're using a lot of salt and a lot of stuff. And so I was like, right. All right, I'm going to make the switch and, and start using these other ones because they're really, really good salts and they work great. And I just don't have to worry about the microplastic thing. Yeah, especially because it seems relatively easy to cut it out. Whereas, you know, there's other things which might be harder to cut out, like the microplastic source. But in this case, you know, it, there are plenty of alternatives, it sounds like. Yep. Yeah. That don't break the bank either, that aren't, you know, going to cost you a ton of money. Yep, exactly. And then what about fats? I know you, we've talked about beef tallow briefly on the episode, yeah. but just, you know, curious. I mean, I mean, from my understanding, from what you've posted, different fats in different types of recipes and different types of uh, use cases, but maybe just like what would be your primer for somebody who's like yeah. just starting so, to think about fats? I'm very much on board the like no seed oils train. I think that um, my biggest problem is with like industrial seed oils, like canola oil. If you look at the process that that plant has to go through to become canola oil, it's like you'll just be disgusted by it. And I don't think they're meant for human consumption. Um, I'm less freaked out, I guess, by things like peanut oil or, um, you know, like even if, if like a cold pressed organic, like grapeseed oil, I don't think is necessarily the end of the world, but I, I still, I, I still would avoid it if you can. Um, I use beef tallow and olive oil for 95% of my cooking. Um, and then I guess butter would be the third one that I use. A lot. I love butter. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah I, I, like, um, it's, it doesn't fall into like the purely oil category, obviously, but like it's, yeah. you, you got to have butter around. Um, and so I think that you should have like beef tallow. I like because it's kind of, it kind of has a neutral flavor, but it's very like rich and unctuous and makes things taste really good. Um, and it's really good for like, any kind of high heat cooking, you can deep fry in it, you can pan fry in it, you can roast vegetables in it. Like it's, it's really versatile. Um, and then olive oil, honestly, is kind of the same way. Like I, I don't, a lot of people think you shouldn't cook over high heat in olive oil. And if you have good quality olive oil, that's not a problem at all. Um, mm. So first of all, the smoke point of really good olive oil tends to be like 420 degrees. 
even if you're deep frying, you're not getting that hot. Like you, you, you're probably at like 375, 400 for, for deep So you're frying. fine. You're totally fine. Even if you do go above that, good olive oil has so much antioxidants in it that it actually combats the oxid oxidization that happens during the heating process. So again, you're fine. And like Italians and Spaniards have been cooking in like 900 degree wood fired ovens with olive oil for a long time. Like I, I it's, it doesn't, it doesn't scare me in the least. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I'll use olive oil for, for basically anything. And so I think it kind of comes down to like which flavor profile you want. Like you do olive oil has a flavor to it and I really like enjoy that flavor, but you know, if you want something that's a little bit more neutral, I'd maybe um, go with beef tallow. Um, and there was something else I was going to say. Oh, I listened to this podcast recently that I'll also send you the link to. But it was with this guy named Tony Casandrinos, who has an olive oil company called. I saw you post about this. It looked. Fa- I didn't. I haven't listened to it yet, but it looks fascinating. Dude, it's like a two-hour masterclass on olive oil, and like I thought I knew a lot about olive oil, and like I learned a ton from this episode. Um, about like why buying organic olive oil is super important and um, why like flavored olive oils are generally like not good and all this stuff. So if anyone wants to go really deep on olive oil, that's like a great resource. Um, But something I learned from that was like olive trees basically like, like they, they soak up everything in their environment and they like concentrate it in the olive. So if you're buying non-organic olive oil, that you're basically taking this like beautiful natural product and having it soak up all these pesticides and chemicals. And then you're pressing that with all these into the fat, which all these chemicals are fat soluble. Oh and then God. basically <laughs> getting like glyphosate liquid at the end. Um, and it's a bummer because olive oil, people think of it as this thing that's like super healthy for you, but you're like, damn, unfortunately, because of the industrial like food system, you could be getting olive oil that's just like filled with these contaminants. So. I've now really made sure to, to only get organic olive oil. And yeah, and that was, a, that was like one of the biggest takeaways from that episode. That, well, I definitely want to listen to that. We'll put the link in the show notes too. Um, the episode I did recently with Callie Means from True Medicine, mm-hmm. we talked about this industrial, the whole episode was about the industrial food system. And it's like, yeah. that is, that is like a heuristic now that I think it's worthwhile to use regardless of what product you're buying. I mean, olive oil sounds extra bad because it's, you know, all these vitamins are fat soluble and it's absorbing everything from the environment, but it probably applies to just about any food that like the closer to the source you can get it, organic, uh, local, natural. These are all, all the things that you should be optimizing for. And the thing we really focused on in that episode was not only like, we didn't really talk about the taste and flavor profile, but I firmly believe that the taste and flavor profile would be better but also you're going to pay one way or the other. It's like you're yes. either going to pay now for the good this these better ingredients or you're going to pay with your health later. And oh. it doesn't even have to be later. I mean, uh, that big part of that episode we talked about was childhood obesity like mm-hmm. and how a lot of it can be seemingly linked to some of these things we've been talking about. So not only are you like not eating a better tasting thing, but you're also poisoning yourself at yeah. the same time. So No, 100%. Yeah. And I think that the pay later ends up often inflicting a much higher cost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you know, the other thing that health, that's the highest cost you could pay. It, it, exactly. Cause you know, that's very, very hard to fix if at all possible to fix. Yeah. And the other thing is like the order of magnitude of cost we're talking about is not 
actually that different because I also yeah. think uh, something that I'm curious if this has been true in your your experience also, like when you eat something that's better just in general, like made from better ingredients, you actually feel more satisfied. So you end up eating, like the quantity you end up eating is less. So yeah, your cost per pound might go up for whatever it is that you're you're buying, but your amount that you need to feel satisfaction also probably goes down by a certain percentage. It's still going to cost you something more, I think, to eat better up front. Yeah. Um, but the, the order of magnitude difference is not as much as it might look initially. Totally. And I think that if you're willing to cook your own food and put in a little bit of like time and energy to kind of plan things, I don't know if you can necessarily get to like cost parity with just buying the lowest quality ingredients, but you can, you can save a lot of money, you know, like if yeah. you, if you are willing to put in the work to like buy certain things in bulk or even like buy, you know, buy a quarter cow and keep that in a, in a chest freezer, like your cost per pound for meat can be really quite low. Um, if it, like, th- there's a lot of ways to, to save. And especially if you're just doing all of your own cooking, um, that I don't think it has to be as expensive as, as people think. Yeah, exactly. Well, Miles, this has been an awesome episode. I feel like we could have talked for like two more hours. I know. <laughs> There's so I know. much stuff here. Awesome. <laughs> um, well, maybe, you know, we got to get you back on, uh, in for the sure. future. Yeah, I, I'm so, uh, I'm so happy about the, like, to find out that you are a home brewer because I've been thinking so much about this wild yeast thing. And it's like a very like niche subject that I can't just talk to anyone about. Um, so it was super cool that you, you like understood that. There's a couple of books I'm going to send you. One's a bit like I'll, I'll, uh, briefly tell you about them now, but they're yeah. both from the brewing world. One is called radical brewing. Okay. And the other one is called, um, sacred and herbal healing beers. And it's basically, that that dude is like kind of like a hippie-ish dude who wrote that book, but yeah. he basically dug through like all these different like historical contexts for beers that are not made in like the way we commercially make them, right? It's like this sunflower beer and this like dandelion beer and like this chamomile beer. And it's just like all these like none of the recipes are his. He's just compiled basically a book and then he writes like a like an essay typically about each one and like speculates on what like the use might have been. Um, and some of them are like religious, you know, like it's like meant to almost induce a trip. Um, and some of them, right. Like there's psychoactive properties to them. And then in others, it's more like medicinal, um, and like what it might've been used for. That sounds super up my alley. There's actually a guy in the fermentation world named Sandor Katz who wrote the art of fermentation. Um, and he does kind of like the same thing where he just explores all these different fermented products from around the world. And like, I think this is probably true in the in the brewing world, but it's certainly true in fermentation is that like when you meet fermentation enthusiasts, like some of them are like the most like white lab coat, like science minded people you've ever met. And some are like the most hippie, like making moonshine (laughs) in their bathtub type of people who are just like, it's really funny to see the spectrum. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, that's so true. And actually, I would actually say the radical brewing guy, I've never seen what he looks like. I've seen what the other guy looks like, like a picture of him. He's definitely a hippie. The radical brewing guy, just based on the book, I think he's more like the lab type person. Oh, interesting. But it's the same type of thing where he's the entire book is about like, because, you know, they can't commercially sell a beer with shrooms as an ingredient. But I mean, theoretically, one could make their own (laughs) um, if they wanted to. (laughs) And and the fermentation does some interesting effects uh, to it. So So interesting. All right. I'm I'm looking forward to this. 
they're both they're both interesting and yeah i think that's like a cool rabbit hole to go down and it's super related to this fermentation thing i think like even bread has kind of had the same thing where it's like what we think of as bread is really what's like the commercially available meant to scale kind of industrial revolution type bread as opposed to what bread was you know probably throughout most of its history yeah and that guy i was talking about chad robertson is very much responsible for a lot of the um like published public consciousness renaissance of naturally leavened uh you know sourdough fermented bread at least in the united states yeah man there's so much here um i feel like there's the show notes is going to be massive just that's how many <laughs> things we've talked about um but miles where can people find you what, what should they be what should they be following where should they they go to to get more miles content uh, definitely Twitter is the primary spot at miles underscore cooks. Uh, and that's miles with a Y and, um, you'll, there's like a links there to everything else, including my newsletter, which is probably like the second place to follow if you're, if you're interested. What's the difference between your free and paid sub stacks? What do you do? Differently? Um, it's really just the, the amount of content. Um, yeah, free, free, like paid people are getting access to, to everything. Um, you know, definitely at least one article per week and then free are getting access to some stuff. Awesome. Well, Miles, thanks again for joining. And uh, I need to go eat something because this entire episode <laughs> made me hungry. <laughs> thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, man.